0: Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvrowski.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Today, Susan can't join us, but we have a special guest in s- instead, one of my friends out of Australia. We have Clive Lloyd. Clive, how are you?
0: I'm really well, mate. I'm waking up. It's 7.30 here. I know you're thoroughly woken up because you've got, what, 3.30 in the afternoon. So I'm just waiting for the coffee to kick in. So I reckon during this podcast, Rob, like after 20 minutes, I'll start sounding really smart, but might have to wait a little while.
1: (laughs) That's how it always goes every morning for me. So I won't hold you too much much to what you say right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, ask me the easy questions first, Rob.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to start off, like Clive, you're going to be new a lot to this audience. So, do you want to just give your give them a background in you? Like, who is Clive Lloyd?
0: Yeah, uh, and on fairly safe ground here, in that when I talk to people in cricket-playing nations about my name, Clive Lloyd, there's this really famous cricketer called Clive Lloyd, and then they get really disappointed when it's not him. Uh, luckily, I think I'm right in saying, Rob, cricket's not a big thing in Canada, right?
1: No, we're big um, on so, hockey.
0: <laughs> yeah so i'm pretty safe on that one so um, i'm a psychologist and for the last 20 years i've been specializing in leadership and, and i know you and i rob I, I talk about safety leadership a lot but really you can take that safety word out i have just, just specialized in leadership uh in particular though, looking at um well, what works <laughs> uh, what works for, for organizations to create a, a culture where their people feel safe to speak up, uh, safe to report mistakes, um, psychological safety, if you like. And that did come through my work in safety because uh, we know very clearly from the research that the organisations that are psychologically safe tend to do better physically as well. They hurt less people. And so I've been a research practitioner for the last 20 years. In other words, really keen to look at what does work uh very much been a, a pragmatic approach that is I, I don't sort of talk to companies about what's trendy or nice we just do the stuff that works and um yeah primarily i've worked with high risks of mining oil and gas construction utilities but really what we talk about in terms of developing safety developing safety leaders and, and, and culture um that, that really goes across um most if not all industries i'd say so that's a very quick version of uh who i am what i do rob
1: No, I love it. And and that's like something that I wanted to to have you on to talk about was this this culture of psychological safety, like for everyone listening, like obviously psychological safety is is where people are able to speak up without fear of repercussion. And, And it's big, you know, it's big in any company, because like I always say, is like if the further you get from the front lines, the further from the truth that you are. And, and it doesn't matter whether your business is programming software to, you know, mining oil and like mining iron ore, right? Like it doesn't really matter. Now, Clive, do you want to just like walk us through like if we're dropped into a site and we're trying to improve our psychological safety, like where do we start or how do we start?
0: Um, I think most would agree, uh, if we're going to make a start on that, it it does need to start with leaders. Uh, And frankly, the more senior, the better, because even your uh, frontline leaders, they need to know that if they're going to start making a a concerted effort to build trust and psychological safety among their people, they they need to know they're going to be backed up by senior leaders. Uh, The the way I usually conceptualise it is is the trust-fear ratio, if I can put it that way. What we know is where, where there is high fear amongst the workforce, uh, and that might be fear of negative consequence, fear of punishment, fear of having a target on my back, where there's high fear, there's low trust. And if there is low trust amongst the workforce, um, that that ties into the whole notion of psychological safety. Trust and psychological safety are inextricably linked. And you cannot really progress in terms of developing psychological safety as long as there is mistrust among the workforce. So the, the, the best focus for me is what can we do as, as a leadership team to develop trust among the workforce? So that's the focus first. And I think it does come down to a couple of um, fundamental assumptions. And one of the fundamental assumptions, and this is particularly the case, I think, in safety leadership, but it's, it's in cultures generally, is how we think about our people, the fundal, uh, fundamental assumptions we make about our people and one fundamental assumption often is that well, really people are the problem, right? You know, um think in the safety context, well, people are the problem because they take bloody shortcuts, they, uh, they take risks, they don't follow procedures uh, and so forth. Now, if we have that fundamental assumption, well, what we do as leaders then is focus on what they're doing, their behaviours, and we seek to control that. We we want to control what people are doing. We might try, for example, giving rewards for good behaviour or punishing bad behaviours. Now, look, you do that with your dog, right? (laughs) Uh, You throw the stick for Rover, and when he brings it back, you give him a little food treat. And he learns very quickly to do that. Um, Humans are a lot more complex. And that, what I'd call radical behaviourism, which is still largely used in, in industry, uh, to control people, it simply doesn't work because that approach tends to then come down to reward or punish. What you end up there is fear of punishment or extrinsic motivation for the right thing. You know, the, I'm doing this because I might get a reward. And what that leads to is essentially, uh, as you said, shutting down that information that could otherwise have flowed upwards um, and, and just a lack of learning. We don't get to progress. and so I call that the fear loop. And just goes round and round and round like that, like a self fulfilling prophecy. One of the biggest shifts I think leaders can make is changing that fundamental assumption from people are the problem to our people are the solution. And this is tied in with the whole notion of safety differently and safety too. But it's not just about safety, this is about leadership generally, and this is about culture in general. People are the solution. Uh, understanding that we all make mistakes, we all miss things, we all take shortcuts if we're honest. But ultimately, people are the solution in that if we want to learn, if we want people to speak up, if we want to develop, learn how to do something better and more reliably, well, then we bring them in and we ask them questions and we we act as partners. In fact, we'll view the the workforce as the experts in the jobs that they're doing. Now, if we're doing that, we stop focusing on what they're actually, you know, their their behaviours day to day, and we actually focus instead on relationships, building relationships, and we focus on learning. As we do that, as we bring them in more and and hear them, they feel more trust, and you end up with greater learning, greater psychological safety. That also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that that is uh, really just basic stuff. If you want to move from a low-trust, high-fear culture and reverse that, so you've got a high-trust, low-fear culture, we do need to change that fundamental assumption.
1: I love it and I think it's something that I think I've seen throughout my career a lot right is is a lot of the places I've worked they're very metric driven there's a lot of incentives for you know hitting certain targets or you know yeah. and then there's disincentives obviously for not hitting targets and and I mean even an example that we we've talked about before is is <clears throat> you know not non reporting of safety incidents. So there was one time I was at a mine and a guy got off the bus and he proceeded to puke all over the ground. And I turned to my site contact and I was like, you know, they should send this guy home because he's obviously, you know, he's obviously not doing well. And the site contact turned to me and said like, no, Rob, like this happens all the time here. You know if you work one year without taking any sick days or without being off for, for these type of reasons you know you're entered in a draw for it was like some significant amount of money it was like over twenty thousand dollars or something for, for your RRSP and it's just like this is something and then like another site like a guy had a broken leg they had him come in and do light duty so it wouldn't be a lost time incident like yeah these type of things happen everywhere and it's really just like reinforces that culture and it's like once you see that as like happen once it, it's just like i don't like how do you even come back from that
0: it's challenging rob it really is challenging like the, as i say in the book uh, trust arrives on foot but leaves on horseback. <laughs> all right. In other words, it, it takes a while to build this stuff, build trust, build psychological safety, but, man, you can lose it really fast. And your example is is great, and I've seen it so many times. Um, somebody is injured, but to, to avoid it, uh, a recordable as an LTI, yeah, they'll bring them back on light life duties. Now, look, so sometimes that can be all right if both people agree and it's good for that person to come back. But when it is done purely for metrics... Imagine then how that looks to the workforce, you know? And so all at once we're saying things like, your safety is our highest priority, (laughs) you know, and all the the glib slogans that people put out sometimes. But on the other hand, uh, we're going to cover that up. Now, you can imagine what that's doing to the trust of the workforce. And, again, what we do is we reduce trust, we increase cynicism, and we build us and them. And where there's us and them, you have low trust. And so it might be convenient, for short-term gain, but it does lasting damage to the culture. Just if I got time, i just one more example um, similar to the one you used. I was working with a, um, an aluminium. Now you say that differently in Canada, right? You aluminium, right? <laughs> <laughs> let me let me translate an aluminium smelter. Um, and they literally had a, a system, a reward system, whereby if they went x amount of um, days, or actually, I think it was months without a lost time injury, right? Without an LTI, there was a, a substantial cash cash bonus given to the workers. And so I think it was probably a week out from the cutoff of, of that reporting period, right? And one of the forklift drivers, um there was a jammed pallet and he was trying to, you know, rip it off. He didn't have his gloves on. And he actually really sort of cut his hand badly and severed some ligament. But anyway, one of his mates was there. Nobody else saw it. And so they, they dressed it, put gloves on to make sure nobody could see that. Uh, wouldn't go to the doctor, even though he was in huge pain, um, because he got infected, right? Um, of course, if he went to the doctor, the company essentially would find out they've had an incident. So they did all of this to make sure they made it to that reporting period. And they did. Cash put in the bank. Every All the workers now have got their cash reward. Didn't we do well? You know, <laughs> um, Six months without a lost time injury. Anyway, now the cash is in the bank. The guy actually does go to the doctor. And it was so badly infected and because of the ligament damage, he he literally had to take his thumb off. They lost his thumb. Then, of course, it all came out and the guy was actually fired. Um, The guy who helped him dress the wound was fired. And and again, it just showed the absurdity of this stuff. What they're actually doing is incentivizing non-reporting.
1: That's right.
0: That's what it comes down to, incentivizing non-reporting. It's absurd, but it still happens.
1: No, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I guess, Clive, you know, one thing I've been sort of going on a hot take about recently has been like my dislike of metrics because throughout my career, what I've seen is is basically that, right? Non-reporting, people manipulating metrics, um, you know, like hitting production targets, but at a, you know, a miss for something else. Now, I guess like, and I've really been leaning towards like, what metric should be used for, which is understanding what's actually happening at whatever company it is. Like, it doesn't matter whether your metric is a safety incident or whether it's how many lines of code you're, you're doing or how many, you know, cartons of milk you sold as a business, like the metric kind of helps you understand like what's working, what's not working and then you can troubleshoot. Now, like as a leader, like if you're showing up at a place and currently they're using these metrics to discipline and to, you know, as this fear-based tactics, like how do we start transitioning a company from using metrics in that way to using them as like basically what they're for is understanding?
0: Yeah, and to be fair, um, a lot of people use metrics because they're they're intuitively appealing. They seem to make sense you know um well we just had a banking royal commission over here a little while ago okay because of the massive amount of corruption that was involved in the banks but when you look at their reward system their kpis it kind of makes sense and so what what a lot of the banks did they would incentivize selling insurance policies to clients um you know in, incentivize selling them products from the bank even if they didn't need them why because their KPIs to get their money to get a, you know, a good substantial income, they needed, you know, it was based on KPIs, how many policies have you sold to clients? So again, what ends up happening? Well, they sell these things to people who don't actually want them. They actually were selling them to dead people uh, because what we're incentivizing is purely financial gain there. So look, it worked for a while until people discovered this, and then what they did, they wrecked their entire culture it cost them billions in fines. Nobody now trusts the banks. I'm not sure they ever did, but anyway, <laughs> it's really gone now. And again, so while KPIs can make sense, we've got to be really careful. Once I think leaders understand the psychology behind KPIs and understand that a well-intended KPI can often have a negative impact, most leaders that I work with, they see it. They, they actually um, they see that we need to do something about it. They, they need to understand the psychology behind it. Oh, you know, I always wish companies would actually bring in psychologists before they even design their KPIs, because we can kind of let them know the, the likely impact. They usually go for the short, short-term gain. You know, put a KPI on sales, you'll sell more. Maybe, but there'll be there'll be a price to that even if we look at that safety field, there's one of the KPIs, I don't like KPIs in safety generally, Rob, I will say. (laughs) Um, One of the ones we have here a lot is uh, KPIs for safety walks, you know, safety walks, Yeah. or what actually should be called unsafety walks, because really that's what they're about. They're about leaders walking around looking for unsafe stuff. So I don't know why they call them safety walks. But anyway, um, uh, many companies over here, um have a kpi for doing x amount of those safety walks per month right five or whatever it is now very few leaders actually like doing them and so what they tend to do to to hit their kpis they'll, they'll begrudgingly leave it till the end of the month all right? and then do five quick ones and of course every other leader is doing the same thing so what the work crews learned very very quickly is that uh, all all these leaders are going to be coming out during their safety walks to get their KPIs. Right, tidy up, guys, tidy up, make sure everything's... And so the the data they get from their safety walks isn't very real anyway. Where there's fear, you get bad data. (laughs) And and so KPIs tend to drive a a lot of that sort of behavior. So for me, it's about KPIs that actually are likely to, um, sure, get good results, but also to actually build your culture. KPIs to build trust. Uh, even in safety, sorry to harp on this, but most of the KPIs don't do that. They just don't do that. Um, lag indicators, I think, for most people are on the way out. Uh, most people tend to focus more on lead indicators, but they're, they're not much better, frankly. I was listening to some, some a podcast with David Proven and Drew Ray, um, who've done a lot of research in this area. And it really comes down to lead indicators don't do much better. KPIs, if you want to do it is looking at what things actually build trust, what things build psychological safety, and then actually have your KPIs around that. If, if you're going you know one of your, your best indicators is actually the level of trust and psychological safety amongst your team. If you're going to measure stuff, measure stuff that actually works. and ultimately, whether it's safety or any other aspect of work Rob, I think actually doing that, assessing trust and psychological safety, which is the number one predictor of high performing teams why would you not measure that instead
1: so how do you measure that like i i think something that i've seen pop up a lot has been you know like every company i've worked for and all the ones i've consulted at you know they they do these engagement surveys and the engagement surveys always have like they always do really well and every company seems to be engaged and yet (laughs) like the reality is that's not true now, like, how do you go about measuring psychological safety? Like, is it just something like you people are willing to speak up, or is it like how does that work?
0: Yeah, and look, there's numerous ways, Rob. There's, there's what i say the the quantitative, which is the much more survey-based. And then looking literally number crunching. There's also the qualitative ways, which is usually done by sitting with a group of a small group of people who understand anything they say is confidential. Or you can do a mix of quantitative and qualitative. Um, my guess would be, um, you know, ideally if a company could do do that internally. That's that's absolutely fine. The trouble is, if there is a lack of trust,
1: that wouldn't a work.
0: <laughs> safety, no, because people are going to go, yeah, it's great here. You know, I, I can, I feel like I can say anything. Because they're, again, high fear, low trust. They're either going to shut up or just say what the company wants to hear. So I think, you know, companies that are serious about doing this, they're, they're much better off bringing somebody in to actually help them with that. And we do it both ways, qualitative and quantitative. We've, we've got reliable and valid surveys, uh, you know, to to assess. Incidentally, um, we, we go right through the company from board, usually right down to contractors. And it's really interesting when you look at the results uh, according to each strata, okay? Uh, and often the senior leaders will actually have rated the psychological safety much more, much more highly than uh, than the teams and, and the contractors. That's a lot, that's like every climate survey ever done, right? And there's reasons for that. But um, while the quantitative surveys we do are great, they're reliable and usually give us a lot of good data, and especially for the um, you know, the more engineering types, who love numbers and, and all that. It's graphs, it's great. But I, I find we get the most useful material when we just sit down with small groups. And we usually do this with groups of eight or nine people who know I'm from outside the company and they know I'm a psychologist. So by law, um, you know, when I say this is, um, you know, this is in confidence, they know that ha- that has to be the case. I mean, that's just what I do anyway. But the law says it needs to be confidential, we actually get much better themes of information through those conversations. And then when we take the themes back to look at how the the culture is doing, we don't have to name anyone or any particular um, team, we can just say this this is overall what people are saying. Uh, And look, the companies, to be fair, that are serious about building psychological safety, that's what they want to do. The ones that are um they, they kind of know they should build trust and psychological safety, but gee, they're worried about hearing bad news. Well, they've wrecked it from the start because they'll they'll sabotage that somehow. Um, you know, one of the archetypal aspects of psychological safety is I feel safe to speak up. And so if you've got a leader saying, yeah, I want them to speak up, but. Or, and I think I mentioned to this in our last talk, Rob, I was talking with the manager the other day. He said, Clive, look, I want them to be able to speak up. I just want them to have the courage to do that. And I'm thinking, if it was really safe here, why would they need courage? You know? And then after talking to this guy for a little while, I could understand you would have to be really brave to bring this guy bad news. <laughs> <laughs> and so a leader's role in this is letting their crews know that it is absolutely safe to bring Bad news to them. If they even get an inkling that it's not, well, they simply won't do it.
1: Yeah, I love it, and it's something you know, Clive. We we've talked about it before, but that psychological safety. You're right. It's like it's not about having courage, and it's that same thing. Is like if you require your people to have courage for them to speak up, they're not going to do it. Most people don't, mm. and and it's like it's crazy, right? Because the more I've talked about this you know, out out there on podcasts and in industry, the more emails I've gotten from people who say, you know, this podcast really resounded with me, you know, but I don't want to talk about it because I'm scared about losing my job or I'm scared about this yeah. or I'm scared about that. And like, I think anecdotally, I knew it was an issue, but now it's like, I'm also seeing the data from all around the world where it's like, it's a definitely a problem.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's a problem across industries, and I'm not sure that um, I'd like to think it's getting better, Rob. I'm not convinced of that. Uh, it's, psychological safety is much more now um, spoken about. Um, it's, in, in fact, since Amy Edmondson published her book, um, The Fearless Organization, back in uh, 2019, it's a bit of a buzz around psychological safety. Uh, in fact, psychological safety has been around as a, as a concept um, for decades for uh, for decades we, we called um a business well the tagline in our website or on our website was the home of psychological safety because we thought we were the only ones really talking about it and then amy edmondson released that book in 2019 and it just went massive and so i think what's been great about that book is um amy edmondson really made it clear what it is and what's not it is not about courage it is about um, creating the space where it doesn't require courage to speak up And um, also, she's—it's a fantastic book. If anybody um, wants to really understand what it is, what psychological safety is, and and sort of how to make a start on doing it, uh, you know, I've got. Please pick up the book and read it, because the more people that read it, the more we'll build momentum around this. Um, So while it's much more widely known now, I think many leaders see it sometimes as too difficult, too hard, too too much of a leap from where they currently are. And that's what I've learned over the years: is, is not to go into companies and tell them they're wrong, you know, and leaders that they're doing a bad job. You meet people where they are, right? They're where they are for a reason, and there's a they see a payoff in leading in a particular way. And sure, that payoff might be short-term gain, or, but if you can help them to see that they don't have to stop doing everything they're doing, they just need to tweak that dial a little bit. Um, start even if they're doing what they're currently doing, but with their people instead of to them. That alone will make a bit of a difference, right? And it's just building on that slowly from, um, you know, the apathetic cultures way down here that it's all about fear and blame and radical behaviourism, gradually just dropping that towards a more involving culture where they bring their people in and then if the team get evidence, and this is the big one, if they get evidence that, look, we did share feedback that could be seen as, you know, challenging or bad news, And not only are there no negative consequences for that, maybe people even get rewarded for that. Then people get genuine evidence, oh, hang on, he he put an idea forward that was like bad news, and they actually give him a pat on the back. People need evidence. People need to know it's safe. And the more that becomes the norm, the more we bring our teams in to contribute with that, the better it is. Uh, Amy Edmondson talks about Pixar and other tech companies who use a group that they call the Brains Trust, And they're usually just you know drawn from the workforce and they'll bring them in you know once a month literally um to encourage what what amy calls radical candor right you know just tell us how it is and again that that group of people know that it's not about you know putting people down or nothing personal in that the reason they're providing that feedback is benevolent in nature it's to help equally leaders need to know when they receive that information from this group of people um, they they just need to listen and, and, and not get defensive. And, and once that starts happening regularly, we learn a lot more as a company about what's really going on. You know? um, because I've got to tell you, often we, what we think is going on at the workforce level is not actually what's going on. There's this beautiful notion in safety differently, the, the difference between work as we imagine it is done versus work as it actually is done by the crews. And there's always a gap. And as long as you've got high fear and low trust, the gap will remain. And unfortunately for me anyway, Rob, it's in that gap where we hurt people or where we damage our culture, we, we, you know, break relationships with stakeholders. If we can start to close that gap where, you know, the way we imagine work is, is done is actually done that way because we understand each other and the workforce feel free to say to us, you know, actually, we don't do it that way. We do this. Now, um, you, you can imagine now somebody reads my book or Amy's book or reads about safety differently. says, right, we're going to do this. Um, this is how we imagine work's done. Let's go to the workforce. Right, guys, show us how you actually do the job. <laughs> you
1: know,
0: if there's low trust, they go, oh, we do it exactly as you tell us to. Um, whereas if you've got more trust, you've built that trust in psychological safety. So guys, really, regardless of what's on my bit of paper, just show us how you do it. No blame, no getting in trouble, no negative consequences. Well, you know, actually we do it like this because it's better. Right? It's easier to do it this way. We manage our risk, right? Now what we can do is we can actually change it. Uh, or And or we can actually make sure that we're managing the risks of the new way of doing things. Now we've done that together. Right? The leaders and the crews have done that together. Um, the crews were involved in rewriting the, the hazard analysis. They take ownership of that rather than us pushing it down. So. Those are just some examples of of what those more mature cultures are actually doing. I, yeah, people not,
1: no, no, I love it. And it's like I've always talked about empowering your people in this way, right? And it's like they know the best way to do the work, they know what's not working, they know what is working. And the more feedback that you can get as a leader in that direction, the better you can make the work. And, like, you know, standardizing procedure, standardizing processes, like capturing that knowledge. All of these things are important for us, regardless of what business we're in. Like this stuff is important. Now, Clive, w- one thing, I mean, we've talked a lot about like things that aren't working out there, you know, around metrics, around fear. Do you have any like top leadership tips that you want to leave people with?
0: Yeah, I mentioned just a really simple example in the book, Rob. And um, This was a guy called John Phillips, um, who I've known for quite a while, one of the best leaders I've ever met, and he works in the construction industry. And, for example, um, I was just running a workshop. He'd introduced it to his crew, and then in a break, we actually walked downstairs. Now, um, we came o- onto one of his construction crews who so were actually doing some scaffolding work on the building, and he noticed there was a, a new guy. On, on the team who he hadn't met before. And so he, he just went up to the new guy and just introduced himself and said, you know, what's your role? And this was really interesting to observe. And the, the, the young guy, the spotter, he, he said, well, I'm just the spotter, <laughs> right? Now, this is what a great leader does. He picked up on that word, right? Just a spotter. That's essentially putting himself and his role down. And John, it was, it was brilliant to watch, Rob. He said, tell me about the role of the spotter. Tell me what, what you understand that to mean. And, of course, the young guy then said, well, you know, I'm I'm looking around, I'm making sure everything's safe for the team uh, and so forth. Right. You know, you've actually been put in a responsible position of looking after the safety and the well-being of your mates. I'm guessing that means they've put a lot of trust in you. And of course, the young kids go, well, I suppose they do. And so they had an ongoing conversation. Now, of course, when John left that conversation, I actually went and had a chat with that guy. And I said, um... What do you reckon of John? And he said, is he is he a leader? I said, yeah, he's a really senior guy. And he said he talked to me like I was an equal. Yeah, he did, eh? He said, um, you know, it makes me just want to do a better job of this now and tell him what, you know, what I've noticed next time. And so in that very, very simple um, interaction, John has done a lot of things. First up, he was open. In fact, he was alert to opportunities to actually build trust. He he, um, he heard, he really listened to this young fellow when he said that word, just a spotter. Um, he helped that young guy to reframe a limiting belief that he had about himself and about the role. And in that moment, he has created deeper trust and deeper psychological safety. And I, I think too often um, leaders and organisations try to change their culture by focusing on the culture. Forget it, right? The culture is too big. Um, intangible, unwieldy, and sometimes just too old. Um, and then people give up because it's too hard, right? The way you change your culture is having leaders like John, one conversation at a time, and building trust with the one builds trust with the many. You know, the, everybody observed that conversation with the young spotter. The rest of that team, they already know John anyway, but their trust is increasing at the same time. Now, if if you do this at a team level, you know, leader to team, leader to team. And all of a sudden, if most or many of our leaders are creating that level of trust within their teams, well, a beautiful byproduct of that is the overall culture matures too. But it's about actually helping leaders to to do that. And sometimes it's it's a skill thing. Uh, Not all leaders are blessed with people skills, if you like. Uh, (laughs) What many people um, incorrectly, I believe, call soft skills. They're not soft, they're bloody hard. (laughs) Not everybody has them. Um, and and one of the things that's been a, a little bit frustrating over the years for me is um, when people when companies have put leaders into leadership role, um, it's not often because they were great with people or because of their um, their emotional intelligence, if you like. They usually do that because they were good operators, good on the tools, and then they suddenly expect now because we've put this person in a leadership role, they will be able to influence their people, build trust well not necessarily and the, the least an organization can do is to come behind them and give them what they need to actually be able to develop skills it's it's often not the leader's fault they were placed there because they were great operators not great people influencers and you know that's okay we can work with that but um yeah it's it's really about that. relationships are key here I've,
1: Yeah, I love it. And I think like you brought up a lot of good things there, right? Like it's the emotional intelligence, it's just willingness to engage with your people and not believing that you're better than them for some reason because you're higher on the hierarchy or, you know, those type of things. And then it's also like what you mentioned there. It's like if you go out there to try to change your culture, like that's very amorphous, it doesn't really like, what is culture? It's a bunch of people making decisions, yeah. right? And so if you affect one person who makes decisions, you're therefore influencing your culture, right? And it's like to go out there and be like, I want to be have a proactive culture. Like, good for you. So does everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get some new posters, right? Um, yeah. uh, I was talking to a guy recently who wanted to change their, their safety culture, if you like, and safety culture is not even a thing. Um, you have culture on your team. You don't have one culture anyway. You've got lots of cultures. Every team has its culture. Safety culture is just a subset of culture. But he said, I want to make sure that people, this is the same guy I said before, that he wanted these people to be courageous. And so he presented this stop work authority. All right, And he said, I've got posters everywhere. I've just done an induction. Now, everybody knows that we've got a policy that people must speak up. I said, mate, to to quote the wonderful... um, Rosa, she, she's in her book, A policy cannot make make it safe to speak up. You know, you're not going to change your culture with a policy. Yeah, <laughs> the, the the policy might say you must speak up. That doesn't mean people will. In fact, far from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny, right? Like, I think a lot of it, like a lot of these companies, I think they pull from, you know, Google's, Facebook's, and those like those tech companies, and they're like, oh you know, they have open door policies, so we should. And we, you know, they have a ping pong table in the break room and and it's like, it doesn't, like none of that actually influences whether or not people are gonna walk into the boss's office and tell them like, this is not working, but I have an answer for you, right? It's it's like that, like if when the boss turns and goes, you're fired because you're speaking up about this, like, that, that's where you're getting it, right? And it, it's got to come from this yeah. place about, like what you mentioned, right? It's like, you know, thanks for bringing this to me. I'm on it and I'm going to fix it. Like, I think a lot of the companies that I've worked for is suggestions just don't go anywhere. It's not that they're maybe yeah. not, like people don't want to hear them. It's just like, maybe the boss has no way of influencing or, you know, it just doesn't go anywhere. And And that's also where people just become apathetic about their work.
0: Yeah, and if we've taken something to a leader, uh, and even if he said, Yeah, I'll look at it, but if they hear nothing about that later on, well, they, they just make the assumption, What's the point? You know, that's called learned helplessness. So we delivered this message six or seven times, nodded their heads, but nothing happens. Uh, eventually, of course, people simply stop speaking up. Um, again, and though, you know, if we're taking it to a mid, mid manager or middle manager, Again, as I mentioned before, he needs or he or she needs to know that it's safe to actually operate on that from their leader. And so it does, you know, this, this needs to be actually backed from the top.
1: I love it. Now, Clive, there was one other thing I wanted you to mention. We talked about yeah. it. I, it was a while ago. But you mentioned is where in order for people to build psychological safety and trust, there is an element of being vulnerable and there's an element that you can do about sharing your personal story with your team in order to build that. Do you want to just elaborate on yeah. that for everyone?
0: Yeah, a good point. Thanks. Yeah. One of the chapters in the book. So in, in the first part of the book, you know, we put the research up there. Why trust? Why psychological safety? And, and you know, once you've read that, I don't think you can Still maintain a position of this. This is not important. It absolutely <laughs> is, and and so I wanted to make the point very clearly, and I think I do that quite well. I think, I think I actually make the case for change very well. But then, of course, we move on to well, how do we do this? Uh, one of the opening chapters in part, well, part two of the book is about how how to do this, and one of those first chapters is literally about the power of self-disclosure, and that is, you know, think about who you trust in your life. Forget work. Um, Quite simply, they're the people you you know the most. And what's interesting, I'll bring you in on this, Rob, for for a moment. Uh, Up until, I don't know, six months ago, we didn't really know each other. We've never met in person. But we have connected uh, in this sort of forum a bit, you know. And one of the things, uh, in fact, our very first conversation, um, I, I trusted you implicitly. And that was purely because you just, you're incredibly authentic. Uh, you shared your story, um, and I believe you were prepared to be vulnerable. Uh, I don't know to what degree you felt vulnerable, but to me, you were prepared to be vulnerable. There's nothing like that for building trust. And the, the best leaders I've worked with and who I've, you know, um, worked alongside have been those who, who are not afraid to actually tell me a bit about themselves, to share their story, if you like. And there's something incredibly powerful. When people are prepared to share their story with you, That's them being prepared to be vulnerable. And we sort of know just intuitively that when somebody is doing that, they're letting me in. They're they're letting me into their lives and and into their world. That helps very quickly. That helps to build trust. And it actually then encourages others to do the same. And one of the things we've done a lot in our workshops is actually just encourage small groups, just small groups, and it's pass or play. You, You never have to do this. But, um, you know, I'll often start by sharing my story, not just my work or professional story, but, you know, um, all the dumb things I've done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I've done a lot. Um, The reason I became a psychologist, Rob. Uh, But again, the more we do that, it makes it just easier for the next person to share. And then the next person before you know it, this group of people, um, they know each other a lot better than they did just an hour before. And just that willingness to be vulnerable and let people in is one of, it's an express route, if you will, to, to creating trust and psychological safety. So I thought it was worthy of a chapter in its own right.
1: Oh, I, I definitely think it is. And, and it's something that like, obviously I've worked on myself over the last year, but it's something where, you know, it does for me, at least it does open up basically room for other people. Right. And I I think that that's something and it doesn't, you know, like you can't just list your resume and expect people to open up. Right. Like we all know we all can sense when people are being real or not real with us. And if you just say, hey, I worked at this company and did this like nobody really cares. But, you know, when you talk about these things like who you are and like how you feel and like the struggles you've been through and the victories you've had and and all these type of human elements, you can really start to build connection with people and, and you know, vulnerabilities to start.
0: Yeah, and yeah, it's definitely an express route to creating that psychological safety.
1: Love it, love it, love it. Now, Clive, where if people are listening and they want to connect with you, where can they find you? And then also tell us a little bit about your book.
0: Yeah, okay, thanks, Rob. Uh, look, if, if you're on LinkedIn, um, and I'm sure many of your, your listeners are, Rob, uh, I, I'm on there. Um, just, just go to Clyde Lloyd, and, and, and um, I'm really happy to connect. I learn from just about everybody I actually connect with. Um, if you want to go to our company and have a look at what we do, the company name is GIST Consulting. That's G-Y-S-T, which stands for Grow Your Safety Thinking. So gistconsulting.com.au, um, and you can get a hold of me there. Uh, The book, Rob, um, I'm not sure if this is audio only or visual, but I'll put that up anyway. Uh, The book that was released, I don't know, what, four or five months ago now, Next Generation Safety Leadership from Compliance to Care. And I think that subtitle is something we've really been talking about here. (laughs) That's right. right. From compliance, just tick the boxes, to care, actually connecting with people. Um, So if people are interested, it is, uh, I guess, marketed as a safety leadership book. But as Rob has remarked several times, it, it's just a leadership book really um, applied to safety, but you can apply it to anything. And it, just in, in terms of getting it, we'll just go to Amazon and just type in next generation safety leadership and uh, it'll take you to Amazon uh, in your area. There is an e-book if you, um, if you like the, the Kindle thing um, and a hardback edition. So. Thanks for helping me give a plug there, Rob.
1: No, no, absolutely. And, and yeah, like obviously like it's marketed as a safety book, but I mean, everything we've talked about today is is industry agnostic and, you know, absolutely. like building trust. I mean, you can do this, like whether it's your kid's soccer team or, you know, your cricket team that you're mentioning, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really matter, right? And, and I think like that's the biggest yeah. thing about leadership that we can say is, it's a human game and whatever that human is, whether it's your spouse, your kids, your community, it doesn't really matter. This stuff all works. It's all about trust. It's about having relationships with each other, supporting each other, impacting each other, and really making each other better.
0: Well, that's a great summary, Rob.
1: So Clive, I mean, obviously, thanks for joining us today. Everybody else who's listening, I really appreciate you guys listening. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Leadership Launchpad Project podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow the Leadership Launchpad Project on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and go to EliteHighPerformance.com slash leadership, sign up for our newsletter So then you can get notified for every podcast that we do, plus some other cool giveaways and fun stuff that we're doing. So definitely connect with us, connect with Clive, and we'll see you all next week.